a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Today we're talking about the International Criminal Court and the reason we're talking about it, it's in the headlines, is because the US is trying to block the court, which is an international community of people that run it. Uh, Is it UN or is it not, Keith? It is United Nations, yep. Um, And the US is trying to block them from questioning Israeli and American soldiers for human rights abuses, so essentially blocking what it does. Now, this is because the National Security Advisor in the US, John Bolton, who's quite a character in himself, we'll come to him, (laughs) um, but he has gone out of his way to block this, which is, is it highly unusual, Keith? Yes, it is very unusual. So the International Criminal Court was established Oh, Wally, 16 years ago, although didn't actually try its first case until about six years ago. Australia is party to the International Criminal Court. So I've been involved with that campaign for decades, but never really thought we would end up creating it. So this is a capacity to put individuals on trial for war crimes and other crimes, right? So you've got the International Court of Justice, Uh, which, again, Australia's been involved in right from the very beginning. Um, The International Court of Justice deals with disputes between countries, such as China and the Philippines over the South China Sea. Uh, The International Criminal Court is really something that grew out of, well, World War II, really. At At the end of World War II, the Allied countries, particularly the United Kingdom and the United States, wanted to put on trial the Nazis who'd been responsible for horrendous war crimes. And there's a similar uh, international military tribunal for the Far East. So there were two sets of war crimes trials that went on. Indeed, the person who got me interested in international law, Colonel Gerald Draper, was involved with running the campaign um, when the British had hosted it. The Americans had the most high-profile one, which was Nuremberg, but there are lots of other trials went on for dealing with with lesser officials. And uh, the British got the ones at Cologne. Um, So it was a huge industry that ran on for a few years after World War II. But then a lot of countries realised, look, some of these Germans are actually going to be of use to us, so we don't want to have them executed or put into prison. You know, Werner von Braun, for example, who was one of the masterminds behind the the, um, uh, vengeance missiles, you know, the V1, V2, he was recruited by the Americans to work for the Americans on what became the space program. And the Soviets were recruiting scientists as well for their own uh, agenda. So in a sense, that move towards some sort of war crimes situation just sort of petered out by the late 1940s. Um, So there's really nothing to govern international war crimes from the early 50s all the way through until the beginning of this century. So we had, so what happened is that we ended up with individual specific cases like Yugoslavia, Rwanda, but they were specifically convened courts, always in the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands is a very small country, very insignificant, well worth a program in its own right, because it's actually a pioneer in growing food. It's also a pioneer in international law. So they've said, we will host these international tribunals, including maritime tribunals. So the Dutch have reinvented themselves, even though they got rid of the lost the empire. Uh, they've reinvented themselves as a good international citizen, as well as um, a, a trailblazer in the export of food. 
So it's a really it's a fascinating situation. So the, the Dutch said, well, we'll host it. Okay, so we get the Treaty of Rome concluded. It's, um, it's called Treaty of Rome because that's where it was signed. Um, the Americans, right at the end of Clinton's administration, signed the document. But that's just simply signing. It's a bit like it's the difference between getting engaged and getting married. So with a treaty, you sign the document and then you have to then ratify it in accordance with your own domestic legislation. So the Clinton administration... On the way out, Clinton decided to sign the treaty, but it was left to the Bush administration to ratify it. And the Americans said, we will not ratify it. As in, like, implement the International in, Criminal Court? Within American law. Within American law. So they didn't have to adhere to any of the laws that, that it was trying to... Recover. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Now, the argument was, well, look, if the Americans ratify it, they will then have to hand over Henry Kissinger to go on trial in The Hague. For war crimes. So a lot of us regard him as one of the worst war criminals on the loose at the moment. Is he still alive? Still alive. And still on the phone to President Trump. And for those who quickly don't know about Henry Kissinger. So Henry Kissinger, um, in his day, was actually a very brilliant person, but totally unscrupulous. And um, came up with it, realised quite early on the Americans were losing in Vietnam. Uh, and had to find a mechanism to get the Americans out of Vietnam without losing face. We're going through the same procedure at the moment in Afghanistan, right? That we need to be able to pull out of Afghanistan without giving, without being seen to be defeated. So he was the one who negotiated that and then got a Nobel Peace Prize for his work for the um, 1973 Paris Agreement on ending the war in Vietnam. But he'd also, in his time in office, he'd come in with President Nixon in 19... 19- January 1969. And just quickly, he was the Secretary of State. Well, originally National Security Advisor, who then went on to become Secretary of State. So he came in with Richard Nixon and um, expanded the war in Vietnam to include Laos and Cambodia, which is why a lot of people regard him as a war crime, a war criminal, unindicted war criminal. Um, and so there's the, the, the always this, he's, he's got a very cloudy sort of history. Um, so he clearly was super bright. Um, but very, con- very, very, very controversial. So the Americans, when they were presented with this request that they join the International Criminal Court, remember Australia did sign on, so we are covered. But our great and powerful friend, the United States, said no, because that might cause problems for Henry Kissinger. Kissinger is already restrained as to which countries he can go to because there are already a national warrants out for his arrest. The Chileans want him, for example, because of his involvement in the overthrow of the um, Allende regime and the installation of Pinochet. So, you know, it's a very interesting role for the Americans to play. So the Americans, and I might also just say, Americans are very bad at ratifying international law. There are two countries, only two countries out of 200-odd, who have not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. One is Somalia, which doesn't have a government, and the other is the United States, which does. And only, I think, quite recently, I think Obama ratified it. On the rights of a child. On the rights of the child. Something as basic as that. It's quite quite difficult, you know, for us as Australia. Obviously, we're covered by the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, but it is a major point of difference between Australia and the United States. So there are a whole host of treaties that the Americans will sometimes follow but will not be bound by. It's a really interesting situation. So... The um, International Criminal Court, up and running, 
um, very much criticised by African countries because the handful of cases have dealt with have been focused mainly on Africa. Um, so I think that the court figure will look, we better do something to give the impression that we're more even-handed. So they've gone after or suggesting that they will go after alleged Israeli war crimes um, and also um, alleged American war crimes, particularly in Afghanistan. Um, and so that's where we stand at the moment. Now, John Bolton, in a, his, in a major speech a couple of weeks ago, um, has said, look, if the International Criminal Court goes after Israel, which is not bound by the International Criminal Court, or comes after us in the United States, we will carry out our own punishment of the International Criminal Court. Which means what, exactly? Well, that'll be very interesting because they might try to restrict ICC officials from perhaps travelling in the United States. They'll block them, from, obviously, from conducting any interviews. Um, so it, we, we don't know quite what this means, but it, it's a way for Bolton, the new advisor on national security, to be able to make a name for himself. Um, and But I find Bolton a fascinating individual, probably the only one in the US government with this huge walrus moustache. Uh, you know, the argument is, well, he'd never be appointed Secretary of State because he'd be ridiculed by so many cartoonists around the world. I'm surprised he's not already. I know. Just based on his character. On his character. But for me, the really interesting thing is that Trump, in 2016, on the presidential campaign, said that he would not get involved in any more wars, which is true. He hasn't done that, you know, he hasn't gone like Bush and, and created more wars. Although he has threatened to with Iran. He has threatened to with Iran, but hasn't so far. Um, but we all got the impression he was going to pull out of places like Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and, and not step up the involvement in Syria, which began under Obama. Um, so that's, that's Trump as the isolationist. John Bolton is what's called a neoconservative. So the neoconservative, completely different strand of American thinking. So a neoconservative is a conservative, but a new type of conservative, right? That, hence the name neoconservative, neocon. Um, so the neocons came to prominence, well, really in the 80s, with a belief that they alone, America, can solve the world's problems. Not working through the United Nations, not working through alliances necessarily, but America alone can do these things. And it was particularly accentuated after 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the United States saw itself as the superpower. Even Barack Obama referred to, I think, I think he was the one who coined the phrase the indispensable superpower. Um, so, you know, that's the image that one gets of America in this special role. And so the neocons are actually aggressive interventionists, right? So you get this, this strand of American thinking called isolationism, which begins with George Washington, the first president, who said, look, don't get involved in Europe's affairs. They're all mad over there. Don't get involved. Uh, and yet we get um, this, this other strand, the more interventionist and neoconservative, this belief that we Americans can solve your problems. Do as we say. And we saw that, of course, with Iraq. Now, it's very interesting to go back to George Bush Jr. in his campaign um, where he argued in the year 2000 that he wouldn't get involved in other countries. His view was ABC, anything but Clinton, right? So Clinton was the one who had US Marines escorting children to kindergarten in U former Yugoslavia because of the conflict there. Bush said, we're not going to do any of that. 
And he held on to that point of view for about eight months. So he gets inaugurated in January 2001 and along comes 9-11, September 2001. And suddenly he is taken over by the neocons. So he becomes a completely different individual. And he says, right, we're going to get involved in Afghanistan, which, of course, is now America's longest-running wars, and then also um, in 2003, the invasion of Iraq. But is this because the whole philosophy of isolationism doesn't work, especially in such a global playing field as it is now? Like like every country is interlinked somehow. Oh, they are all interlinked, but... um, do you have to go to the other extreme, which is a neoconservative, which is to, you know, arrogantly say, I know how to sort out your problems. Get out of my way. I'm going to sort out your problems, which is what America did, particularly with the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Remember, we had these weapons of mass destruction, which were never found. Um, they had been there, but in the case of the chemical weapons, they had decomposed. It's, uh, it's the... We know that the Iraq had used gas warfare on the Kurds at Halabja, right? That was done, what, 30 years ago now. It's amazing how time flies. Um, so we knew that he had those weapons. But chemicals degrade over time. You'll know that from your own bathroom cabinet. You've got all sorts of medicines, but they've got expiry dates. So uh, Saddam Hussein lost his chemical weapons, and by 2003, did not have any weapons of mass destruction. Um, and yet, America still went to war for this wrong reason. Bush, by the way, is also on the list of unindicted war criminals. Oh. You would include Tony Blair on that, the subject of a movie, by the way. Did you see the movie The Ghostwriter? No, but I, I read about it. Yeah, brilliant novel. So um, this was made into a movie, and it really revolves around a prime minister who ought to go on trial... The New York Times said the movie was ridiculous, but it does explain why Tony Blair supported George Bush in 2003. If you go back to the Vietnam War, the British didn't get involved in Vietnam. So there was no automatic reason why a Labour Prime Minister should support the Americans in their overseas activities. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking about the International Criminal Court because John Bolton, the security advisor in America, um, is trying to block them from going after Americans for war crimes in Afghanistan and also Israelis, um, which is, well, there's just, it doesn't seem to be any really good reason for this, though, is it? Because they haven't ratified. If America hasn't signed up to the International Criminal Courts, then why, why would they go after Americans anyway and why would they think they would play, play ball? Well, because they would go after them because the Americans themselves are not putting them on trial. That's the excuse that the ICC would have. But do they think the Americans would would go along with that idea? No, of course not. No. You see, if you look at Australia, if we have alleged war crimes, and we've had a few cases, if we have alleged war crimes, then we are bound by that treaty. In fact, previous Australian Geneva Convention legislation, we put our own people on trial. Now, the argument is the Americans are not putting their own people on trial. So you get, you get the allegations that we've seen, you know, from WikiLeaks, etc., about how war crimes are allegedly being committed, but the Americans are not investigating them. And so the International Criminal Court is saying, well, you're not investigating your own war crimes, therefore we will take it on. And we, let's talk again about John Bolton for a minute because you're yeah. saying um, that he is a neoconservative, which is um, a strait of conservatism, which is very 
dominant yep. in the way it thinks that they are the always the right ones. The American is the number one in the world and everyone should bow down to them or listen to their advice on how to act. But then Trump is an isolationist. So well, why he started he get- as an isolationist. This is the thing that we find. It doesn't make sense to me that he should appoint John Bolton. But what if he got John Bolton? Maybe Trump isn't an isolationist. Maybe he just is trying to appeal to the base. Yep. But there he's got John Bolton on side to do the dirty work for him so he can appear like an isolationist, but his security advisor is not. Well, the base would be isolationist. This is That's what, what I think. Yeah. But he still gets to, to have his fingers in both pies. So he gets to present as an isolationist, yeah. but he gets John Bolton to not be. Exactly. Yeah. But it, it, for me, it doesn't make sense. You know, he, one of the reasons people voted for Trump in 2016 was that there was a clear policy difference between him and Mrs. Clinton. You know, if, if it, Mrs. Clinton had become president, we would have much more confrontation with Russia by now. Right? It was her husband that started the expansion eastwards of uh, NATO, right? Completely contrary to the agreement that George Bush Sr. had negotiated with with the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, right? Um, so NATO has moved east. Mrs. Clinton was going to continue that and would have taken a very hard line. Trump was able to say, look, why should we have wars with the Russians? Uh, can't we try to, to live in peace with them? That's what's get triggered, of course, this Russian in- investigation that we're seeing now with Robert Mueller because people are saying, why should Trump be so supportive of um, improving relations with the Russians? And yet, of course, you know, Trump would say it's perfectly logical. You know, why do we need to go to war against all these people? So for me, it's fascinating to see the way that you've got people within the United States saying, yeah, look, we're sick of fighting You know, we've got now 17 years of fighting in Afghanistan. And what have we got to show for it? Absolutely nothing. Same, of course, with Iraq. And, of course, if you look at a lot of the supporters of Trump come from poor, traditional blue-collar districts. You know, the coal miners of West Virginia would be the stereotypical example. They are the ones who supply the soldiers to the Defence Force. So it's not these smart kids in New York and San Francisco. They don't sign up for the armed forces. Remember, America has a volunteer force. So the people who get recruited are the poor, downtrodden individuals for whom the military service is their escape route from poverty. Lindy England, who was involved with that Abu Ghraib uh, scandal, a tragic woman. Uh, She um, was also, uh, by the way, from West Virginia, So she signed up, not for the armed forces, but for the military police. She got involved in Abu Ghraib, uh, which was where it was a a torture building used by Saddam Hussein, and the Americans took it over for the purposes of torture. One of the proposals I made at the time is that what they should do is to scrap it very publicly, no more torture. Instead, we'll redecorate the building and we'll ask Bill Gates to provide computer terminals so that people can learn how to use computers. That's what I would have done. That's how you fight counterinsurgency warfare. But no, what do the Americans do? They simply took over the torture chambers and used them. And Lindy England was one of those. There are a lot of photographs. The one, the photos that are available with her and the naked men, uh, they're, they're even worse ones where they're getting sodomised by a boyfriend. So this poor woman with a very poor self-image and it's generated a whole debate about why on earth would she allow all this to happen to her. Well, 
She's come from the back blocks of West Virginia. Uh, she had very limited opportunities, limited education. West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the United States. The military, or in this case, military police, represented the avenue for her to get out of that poverty and reinvent herself. Get a mi- You serve for a few years in the military, then the military will pay for you to go to college and then perhaps get a good degree. And so there are a lot of ordinary Americans who sign up nowadays to serve in the Defence Force for a few years, hope that they don't get killed or wounded overseas, and then go on perhaps to get a college education and then um, get a, a proper job elsewhere in the United States. These are the people who are bearing the brunt of the fighting, not the smart kids in New York and San Francisco. And so these are the people who voted for Trump because he said, we're not going to get involved in any more wars. And to Trump's credit, they haven't actually expanded and created another war, but he's still bogged down in Afghanistan. Why? Because it takes us back to where we started with Henry Kissinger. The challenge for Henry Kissinger at the time of Vietnam was he realised quite early on the Americans were never going to win. Uh, And we know that. You know, the ruling elite all knew the Americans couldn't win. But day in, day out, Americans were being killed, not to mention Vietnamese and Australians, right? So Henry Kissinger negotiated an exit strategy which required a decent interval. So you end up with the Americans and the peace deal in 1973, two years of breathing space, and then in 1975 you get the North Vietnamese overrunning the South. But it wasn't so much of a a defeat for the Americans. Tragically it was because you end up with all sorts of problems. But the Americans were able to say, well, look, we left two years ago. The Americans are trying to do the same in Afghanistan. They know they can't win and they're looking for the same sort of mechanism to get out. A lot of people voted for Trump in 2016 hoping that he would get out. He still hasn't. And with people like John Bolton, they will probably end up getting involved in more wars, the obvious one being Iran. Mm. So the lesson out of today is that America doesn't seem to learn the lessons. No. What no great power does. The Russians got involved in Afghanistan. The British did it three times. And it was, in some cases, the same regiments. It was the grandsons of the, <laughs> of the previous people who were involved in fighting Afghanistan. You get a certain arrogance of power. And that's, of course, the characteristic of the neocons. I know how to sort out your affairs. <laughs> Dr. Keith Souter, as always, so informative. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.